Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. And uh, it was at the same time that I noticed that, that I also noticed the first dissonance between the promise that the covers and the illustrations and the audios would do and the reality of what the rules would provide. But that's uh, when I my first step into game design. But at that moment, it was this thing that, okay, so I can sit down and imagine worlds without needing them to be programmed on a, a video game or written by an author I right. can be the author, I can be the character, and I can share this experience. I strive to have a more global guest list because I learn how much the hobby history and the design approach varies by region. Cesar is not our first Brazilian guest, but he shows us how unique the hobby is in different parts of the world. I love his premise that games make a promise, and it's a designer's obligation to make good on that promise. His Not a Demon, since this recording, won the Crit Award for the best solo or standalone TTRPG. When you hear us talk about it, you'll guess why. Currently, he has a narrative card game called Two Minute Warning that brings the heart-pounding final moments of the American Football Championship to the tabletop. Wait until you hear his secrets about playtesting. What he shares during the Grooving On segment is worth sticking around for as well. Okay. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Cesar. This is Sean. And this is Navi. And together we're a couple of Drakes, the creators of Court of Blades and Zedbell. When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Top. Top. Toppy Top Top. <laughs> Don't try that again. <laughs> When we're not writing games, we're listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today I sit down with Cesar Capacle. Cesar is a Brazilian tabletop designer currently based in Madeira Island. Creating since 2016, he has dedicated his time to game design for the past three years and has released more than 20 games since. In 2022, he was a Designer of the Year finalist on the Tabletop Awards, and CBR named him one of the 10 indie TTRPG designers to watch in 2022. Holy cow, Cesar, welcome to the third floor. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'm just imagining uh, there's a wall in your office with all of these awards and accolades and <laughs> 20 covers of different games. Uh, there's <laughs> also a few JPEGs that I saved on a file. <laughs> that, that's okay. <laughs> so Cesar, before we dive into everything, I need to kind of learn a little bit about you. And the way I like to do that is ask the standard podcast podcast question, which is how did you find games? But I want to do it a little bit differently. I want you to imagine for me, There was a time where you knew nothing about tabletop gaming, whether it be, you know, the Euro style board games or RPGs or anything. And then it got introduced to you for the first time. And I want to go back there and hear how that happened. Oh, I remember it vividly. Not because it was recent. <laughs> I was uh, 12 years old in Brazil. So we're talking 1994. And uh, 
I had never played anything besides our versions of Monopoly or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine just, uh, we're walking on the street and said, yeah, you know what? Uh, this afternoon, there is a guy that's running a, a game uh, and it's a kind of a board game. Do you want to go? I said, sure. And I, I didn't know the guys. When I entered the room, they had a copy of uh, first quest i don't know if that was a thing in the united states no. as well that was like the uh, introductory kit to ad and d in brazil ah so what they sold was uh, kind of a simplified rules uh adventure modules and uh pre-made character printed on heavy stock with illustrations and everything and also a cd with <laughs> Parts of the narration from when we are like dungeon delving, when you enter a room and then the DM would play the snippet with the characters, uh, voice actors, like interpreting, oh, what is this thing? And the drops. Oh, and that's the, cool. It, it was so amazing, so immersive. And from the first five minutes that I sat there not knowing anything that I was doing, I was hooked. And uh, uh, that was the, the beginning. And uh, back in Brazil at that, that time, especially, that was very hard to have access to, you know, role-playing games in general, because those books were very expensive, considering yeah. currency exchange and, uh, and everything. And for me, it was never an option to, to purchase those books. So we were known as the Xerox generation. <laughs> we used to have like one lucky richer friend that actually bought the, the books and everybody else would like Xerox copies of yeah. uh, specific parts of it. And we would learn. It was a very oral tradition back in the day. Mm. And uh, we would learn bits from the Xerox copies and the copies of copies to a point that you couldn't even read what was on the page. But uh, yeah, that was how I was introduced uh, to, to RPGs back in the day. So when you think about it, Cesar, when you go back and, you know, revisit that first table with that uh, pretty unique experience, multimedia experience, um, you mentioned you, you were hooked immediately. Um, and obviously now, you know, it's become a huge part of your life. Knowing that, looking back, do you have a sense of what, what, what was, what happened to that 12 year old kid? What happened to you back then that just really put an indelible mark on you? Excellent question. You know, uh, one of the, the things that I liked to do the most when I was a kid was, uh, like playing with my toys, uh, by myself and creating those worlds and stories around them. And I really like to, to, I've never been a drawer, uh, illustrator myself, not a very good artist, but uh, I like to draw like fantasy islands with pirates mm. and stuff and imagine the stories that could happen there. And I would have like these toys or even without toys, like sticks and rocks and sand in the backyard. And I would create these worlds of imagination. And I didn't have access to a lot of, uh, other kinds of media either like uh, fantasy novels or anything like that we had some series of uh, brazilian books that were sort of uh, but more teenage experiences than fantasy worlds right and when i uh, sat there at the table with uh, the gm by the way he was a very good illustrator so he would draw his custom monsters and show to us 
And I said, okay, so this thing that I used to do by myself on my backyard is a thing that I can experience and there's support for this kind of story to happen. You know what I mean? And uh, I was at the same time that I noticed that, that I also noticed the first dissonance between the promise that the covers and the illustrations and the audios would do and the reality of what the rules would provide. But that's uh, when I, my first step into game design. But at that moment, it was this thing that, okay, so I can sit down and imagine worlds without needing them to be programmed on a, a video game or written by an author I right. can be the author, I can be the character, and I can share these experiences. That was just fascinating. And uh, all those things about uh, legends and relics and his uh, sense of wonder that uh, came with those fantasy worlds. It was just uh, a cater to to this child that always liked to imagine those words. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's um, what's interesting to me is, you know, to finally find like a home, right? Like I love imagining worlds and tales and potentials. And now I've got a structure to do that and I can bring other people in on it. All of that makes sense and how that would click for you. Um, and also gives us a little bit of insight into a lot of what you've created, but I'm, I've got to lock in on the dissonance piece. So do you feel like very early on you, you felt like some of these rules that are being attached to this process are, are, are more of a struggle than they should be? Or do, do you think you had an awareness like that? Or is it just like uh, some of these roots, rules are, are wonky? Well, for the first few, I'd, I would say months, I thought it was my problem. You know, mm. uh, I am the newbie here. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with those games. So things are not clicking or I don't have access to the books. I, I can't read all these rules. And Part of it is still true. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I tend to say that I design not for only for my interests, but for my limitations as well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but there was a point that I, uh, kind of understood that the things that I were trying to say that the game was, uh, was very much like buying a cartridge from a video game on the 80s that had those amazing illustrations and then when you plug it in it was just five pixels in the head <laughs> right. you know it's not it's selling something that is not providing but the thing was in terms of rules i thought that was like there was taco generation you know and uh i want to uh experience those uh marvelous worlds and uh, encountering these fantastic places and then when i looked at tools that the, 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 this box provided i thought well this is pushing me into another direction in, mm -hmm. and not giving a lot of support to the things that it wants to do and then people always said no that's because you have to be a good gm and oh my god <laughs> it took me a long time to understand how terrible this advice it this advice was and uh but it was very early on after a few months when i tried to run it for the first time and i said okay nothing that i read here is helping me provide a better experience mm. for the people i play with i don't need fire damage or how many d6s i lose if if i fall from a cliff that's not helping me 
with a story. And then I started to become a little frustrated with it uh, for a while. And I just uh, said, well, there's got to be a different way to do it. But again, there was no way to access anything else at the time, you know? Well, and Cesar, what that makes me want to find out then is what do you consider your second awakening, right? So the first awakening was, was encountering the, you know, this game, uh, and, and, you know, playing Dungeon and Dragons, but I would imagine there was a second awakening when you, when you found a game or games that were a little bit more closely aligned to the promise for you. Can you, can we go to that when that happened? Absolutely. So, uh, unfortunately I had a small gap in my RPG life, not as long as yours. I've just, (laughs) I was listening to another episode. My gap is about your age. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. No, mine was uh, about six to seven years. It was college pretty much. Yeah. So I had some experiences during high school. I played D&D again. That was 3.0, 3.5. And we had those great, uh, huge tables that we start like Saturday at 5 p.m. and uh, end on Sunday, 8 in the morning with like nine or 10 people on the table. So it was, <laughs> it was amazing because of the experience. But again, I, I would look at the, the, the games and the tables and the, my character sheet and everything that I had to engage with the mechanics was actually taking me away from that experience. Right. You're having fun despite the rules. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, I, I was still very poor, so I, I didn't have any books <laughs> at, at, the, at that point. But there was a Brazilian magazine. RPG mm. magazine called Dragon or Dragon, Dragon Brazil, actually. And they, one of the editions, they published uh, an entire system in a magazine. So it was accessible for the first time. Uh, I was, it was like five or 350 at the time. It was 1997, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, just after a long while, and I, when I had access to other games, I realized it was just a pastiche of uh, BRP, Ars Magica, and GURPS all bundled together. But for me, it was the first time that I saw something else, and I had access to the complete rules at, at uh-huh. the, all the time. And I could look through it, and it was like his modern horror setting, like angels and demons and conspiracy theories and Illuminati and arcane magic that we have to keep secret. And it was, oh my God, this is fascinating. (laughs) I remember, I think I read this magazine. It was like 60, 80 pages long. I've read it like 20 times. I'm not kidding. And then I decided to run it for my friends. But at this point, we kind of moved for different cities to study. Because we have an option in Brazil, uh, you can do normal high school or you can do a technical high school. So it's mm-hmm. like professional together with high school. I opted for one of those. So I had to move away and uh, another friends moved. So we, we didn't have our group of friends anymore. So I tried to run it a couple of times on weekends, but uh, uh, it didn't go very far. So uh, it was like a very sad way to say goodbye to RPGs. <laughs> I finally had something. It's not because of the, the rules again. It was just right. because it was accessible in a way that I could have everything in my hands. It's mm-hmm. just shorter. Then after uh, college that I couldn't find a group to, to play with, my friend decided to run D&D again. That was fourth edition. This time. And then uh, after college, we had internet. So uh, Mm. we grew with, uh, so we could manage to play online for the first time. So yeah, let's give it a go. 
oh, it's the D, we know what it is. And uh, we stumbled upon this, those frustrations again very early on. And I, I remember I have a friend, he always liked to play with a barbarian and the guys that just go in the front, <laughs> but he's cursed with the worst luck with the dice. So uh, I remember him, we were in the room with like some goblins or something like that. And uh, he was swinging on a warhammer and uh, just missing row after row mm. after row. And he would say, it's impossible for me to imagine like a seven foot tall barbarian swinging a warhammer into a goblin and missing it time right. after time. So then I, I, I stopped and think, you know, that's correct. That, that, it's not, it's not fun. It's not, it's not catering to the sense of being this kind of hero, especially in the fourth edition that aimed for that. And so I started to, you know, let's house rule something here. We have like degrees of success on the attack and there is a passive defense as well. So I, I put something together and I tried to apply it. It was a little better, but then uh, like the damage, uh, quote unquote, was done. I decided that there's got to be something else out there for mm. that uh, provides a, uh, an experience that was closer to what we were expecting. And uh, finally, I didn't need money to access those things. I had the internet. So right. <laughs> I started Googling and I stumbled upon fate. Nice. Actually, it was a, a hack of fate called F sharp as the musical mm. notation, F mm -hmm. sharp. It was 13 pages long and the summary was in one page. It was like a Word document that someone put together and put it on a blog or forum or something like that. When I read that, my mind exploded, Craig. It, it was, it, wait, wait. So I can just like write three sentences in my character sheet and then everything that I do that I think fits to this description makes sense. And if I fail, it doesn't mean that I, I make a fool out of myself. Right. It makes the story move forward. Wait, is this possible? Like, can I use tokens to actually interfere with the narrative and add elements to it and create collaboratively with my friends? So I said, okay, all right. <laughs> now we're talking. Now this is the thing that they promised me in 1994. Right. And just like, 12, 13 years later, I was being delivered with a 13 page word document that I found online on a forum. So, uh, yeah, that was it. When you introduced this F sharp, uh, game to your friends, like for you, it all clicked, right? You read this thing. You're like, holy crap, like finally something. How was it for the other players though, for your other friends who were very, it sounds like very steeped in the, the traditional D and D um, you know, mode, did all of your friends click on this as well? Or did you have some bounce off of it? A lot of bounce off, actually. Uh, interesting. Uh, at that point, uh, again, since we didn't have much access to anything else, there was this holy trinity in Brazil. There was D&D, &D, the World of Darkness, and the hardcore GURPS fans. That was God. that uh, we had access to. And uh, if you were in this ecosystem of D&D, &D, you were more or less used to the fact that it was like a war game with narrative elements. Mm -hmm. And if you want a more storytelling heavy game, you have to rely on the DM to, to account that for. And the rules are there for the combat and things like that. 
so when I introduced that and I, there was like a, the page is like an index card that to write three sentences, some of my friends uh, just, uh, you know, this is weird because they saw d and as a different kind of board game. Right. The other ones that were more invested in story and the possibilities of a failure moving forward the story were very excited. And I never actually introduced F-sharp. From the moment I've read it, I started designing my own things based mm. on that. So I said, hey, guys, I have an idea. Let's try this. And we played like one session of every iteration of a different hack that I made to the same rules. Poor guys. I have to give credit <laughs> to them. because Poor guinea pigs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I had the intent to publish it at the time. Right. I was just experimenting with different ways to enjoy a thing that I thought it could be better than the experiences we had before. So we ran a lot of different modes. I designed a version of the game that we could play on WhatsApp, instant messaging, using emojis as a a part of the mechanics, like token-based emojis and things like that. So we played one session of like five different prototypes of games. And for me, it made a lot more sense than to anybody else that I talked to from my closest friends. It wasn't until I found like a community of hackers and indie designers that things clicked for other people. So you're trying to solve some problems for your table, right? And it sounds like that was the genesis of you starting to tinker. Um, and, you know, making several different games in in this search for the sweet spot for your table. When did you make the jump past your table? When did you make the jump to say, I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to put something out there. And and why, why, why was it, why did you need to do more than just creating for your friends? Right. This again, and uh, I think it's important now that we're looking at uh, this development as a whole, how important access to tools and things are. So uh, I'm speaking from the global south and uh, sometimes people don't realize how hard of a barrier we have, not only to enjoy different things, but to express (laughs) the things we have inside. So for a long time, I had this idea that uh, publishing a game or a book was reserved to the very rich or to the publishers or to, you know, and even when uh, on the North, uh, people were creating things uh, inside their own groups and publishing on blogs and everything. I always thought that's not for me because I can't have access to all those things. Interesting. And then I started talking to other friends that were, you know, we're just exchanging doc docs and uh, word documents with our little hacks and everything with uh images uh, copied from google that was like the zine version of the 90s it is a, a word document yeah. with a copied images right and then uh there was this studio indie studio in brazil called lampion game studio they are still uh very active today one of my favorite designers in brazil uh works there and uh, they started publishing small games mm. by people from the community, by just P- PDFs. 
And then I, I was following them on so, so, social media and I saw a game they published. I opened a PDF and I looked through it and I said, you know what? This is something that I can see myself grasping mm. even without the access to the tools available. So I said, I have those ideas floating in my mind, especially those that cater to my limitations, like my inability to grasp very complicated rules and lore. Uh, up until today, I have a very hard time with games with a lot of lore. So I, I said, maybe I can put together some of those concepts that I have in my mind into uh, an accessible format that I could, that more people that are trying to make this small jump between having heard about RPGs and playing their first RPG, they don't need to spend 500 bucks in 900 pages of books and they can experience these with their friends at home. So what I did was I used Google Slides, which is free, and I formatted those rules in a resolution that you could read on your smartphone. Mm. So my first game was a very generic uh, system with uh, like three slides of how you can create your own setting. So bullet points on what, what you have to consider to create your own setting. Generic rules to create a character that could fit any setting. And uh, one single resolution mechanic to solve everything that you could encounter. And all formatted that you could put in on a pocket, on your pocket. Because uh, in Brazil, it's easier for people to have smartphones than a computer or even access to a printer. So I said, this, if I spread this, perhaps other people will see it and it can be an entry point to RPGs, which was, of course, a very high dream (laughs) for a 200 million person country to, you know, oh, my game is the one that people will win. Yeah, probably 50 people saw this game, but I, uh, I formatted it and sent it to this studio and they said, oh, th- this is fun. Uh, this guy, George, he revised the game, said we can publish it. And that was my first game. And then uh, soon after that, I kind of translated it and put on drive through RPG. Today, when I look back, uh, the game doesn't reflect the things that I believe in right now, like as Why? a game design. I evolved a lot. I evolved. It doesn't mean that I'm better necessarily, but I changed a lot my perspective on how games should work. And uh, especially considering that I'm now a very big believer on GMless games. And I think Mm -hmm. this is something we can talk about. And, uh, but the game was there and I introduced uh, my nephews and nieces to RPGs using that system. And it was a lot of fun for a while. So when I saw, when I felt this feeling of having people around a table enjoying something that I helped support <laughs> through the, the rules that I created in my mind. It was like the best feeling ever. That's Much cool. better than playing a game for me, even. And that's something that I made peace now, Craig, that I, I enjoy making games more than I enjoy playing games. Yeah. And, and I've talked to several, several uh, creators that are that way, that, that there's a joy in the creation, right? That creative process. But I, you know, it's obvious that first game that you've, you've evolved since, right? That, that would only make sense. That would be an expectation. 
But when you go back and look at that game, where do I still see your fingerprints, right? So is there anything that you did in that game, the first run, that's still a part of who you are now? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is something that I've been reflecting on. And um, so if I rumble for more than 25 minutes, you stop me. (laughs) No, uh, I'll try to be brief. It is, I want to provide people with a uh, complete experience with a game that I provide. And when I say a complete experience, it's not that I'm going to offer you a complete world with all the factions and cosmology and a single mechanic for every single aspect of things you are going to do. No. What I want to provide is if you get this little PDF and a few dice, you have everything you need to sit down Mm. at the table and have fun for two to three hours. You know what I mean? So, uh, and I don't know if this is better Commercially, certainly it isn't <laughs> because uh, I, uh, I've seen the community nowadays thriving on games that rely on the fruitful void, if you know what I mean. I don't. What does that mean? I'll give you an example. Uh, Morkborg or Mothership, for mm-hmm. example. Those are games that... Uh, they have the rules, they have the setting, they have the mood, but the, those games, they live with the creations from the community. So right. the blank spaces that the game purposely leaves, like you need adventure models, you need variations, you need different worlds or uh, riff-offs or hacks. It's what make the games feel alive, yeah. you know? So this uh, brings the community together. It's uh, evocative. You see a game with this fruitful void. You want to fill those voids with your own creations and adventures and everything. So it's inviting in this way. Mm -hmm. My games are not like that because uh, I want not this uh, like I am the author. I'm the owner of the game. Only my word is real. But I, I don't want people to need. Right those things to enjoy my game. So I want to provide a full experience, especially because I write GMless games. Uh, I I don't need people to have to rely on soft skills acquired elsewhere for them to be able to enjoy my creation. And uh, this, in a, in a way, uh, kind of is not inviting for people to create hacks or expand. You can't create adventure modules for my games, you know what I mean? Or or, uh, perhaps you can create hacks, but there is nothing there that is invite, oh, I would, it would be fun if I created rules for exploration in this game. They're a very closed experience. Right. In in a sense. So, yeah. So, but if I look back at that game, answering your question, the seed of this initiative was there. All right. I want these people to read this 30 slides on their smartphone. And that should be enough for them to enjoy a a session. And what's neat to me about that is that not only was that built into, it sounds to me like in the, you know, the rules and everything, but being accessible was part of the format as well. I mean, for you to think to yourself, you know what, most of the people here are going to have smartphones. I need to design the document not only the game to be accessible that way. 
I think it's very telling because of it, it, it explains a, a philosophy that you have which reflects very interestingly into the lack of accessibility you had as a kid, right? And that frustration. So I think that's, uh, that's pretty damn cool, man. That's pretty uh, damn cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Uh, the format and the thing that you wouldn't need a supplement, yeah. and, uh, you don't need to expect that in six months, there will be something new that you have to buy because there is some kind of collectionism, uh, that goes with those games with fruitful voice. I want to buy all the modules, all the expansions, yeah. all and everything. And I come from a reality that, uh, that's not possible, man. Yeah. If I can give you 30 pages and that's enough for you to have fun, I'm going to do it. That's for sure. Well, and, and this is going to uh, sound pretty sappy, but I think in it's, I think in your own way, you're making games for 12 or 12 year old you, right? You're making games that really, that's what you needed right back then. Yeah, exactly. I um, wish trying it, to bake those barriers. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so guys, the Insider Insight series allows me to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creation. We're going to do that with uh, Cesar after the break. And and <laughs> Cesar has so many games I wanted to talk about. I only picked two, um, which means that Cesar will have to come back. So we're going to come back and talk about Not a Demon. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This is Sean. You may have heard of me from such movies as Brett and Sean Go to Illinois, Two Motorcycles, One Stick of Dynamite, and Gaming and BS, what kind of RPG podcast is that? After my NFTs were stolen, I decided to become a patron of Third Floor Wars. The content is great, and it costs me less than a good shot of liquor. So consider becoming a patron. It may just land you your next big role. Head over to patreon.com forward slash third floor wars. Tell Craig Sean sent you. As I mentioned before the break, um, I, this was not easy. Um, there's one game in particular. It's the, the segment after this that uh, that we're going to talk about that, you know, that was important for you to mention. But then you stupidly said to me, Craig, you know, if there's another game you want, you know, here's a link to my itch page. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I could, like, like I could, I could interview him for 10 hours. Look at all these <laughs> games, but I had to pick one. And the one I picked is not a demon. So let me read the blurb. So everybody has a little bit of context and we'll, then we'll talk about where this game came from. So not a demon is a game about perseverance, creativity, seeing beyond appearances and being true to yourself. You play as a shapeshifter guardian spirit manifested in the human world as a demon-like creature. Despite your honorable calling, the common folks see you as a monster and treat you as one. Your supernatural essence stops you from communicating directly with them. You are incapable of mundane actions such as talking or interacting with the material world. Wherever you, whatever you do, it is both miraculous and terrifying for the people of the lands. Everything in this world will tell you to give up and return to the spirit realm or become the demon they say you are. You know your truth. 
and you are determined to be a guardian and a helper of these people, even if they never recognize you. Super evocative and and something that's that people need to know. This is this is a solo game, right? This is a game that I, we one person can play. Um, I, so the first question I always like to find out was something so evocative like this. Was there a narrative concept that came first and then you figured out how to gamify it right with some mechanics or was there a mechanic looking searching for a game? Interesting question in this case in particular, because of course there are games that are very straightforward one or the other, but in this case, uh, it was two things coming together. I was participating on the, uh, dash jam. You've, you've had RP here in the show, right? Mm -hmm. And he has this system called charge. And then he made an abridged version called dash. Yep. And uh, he put out a, a jam for this system. And I'm friends of, with RP and we talk about game design every now and then. And, said, and I can't resist a jam because self-imposed constraints are the best thing for creativity. Uh, so working on a time frame and a specific system and everything. So yeah, I wanted to create something for that. I had started another game for it and it took like long legs and it was like a hundred pages long. I said, okay, hey, I can't finish this game right now. It's in my back burner still. So I said, I, I, I want to try something else. And uh, one of the things that I do sometimes when I'm just looking for inspiration is I try to look at uh, public domain art. This mm. is for two reasons. Uh, one, because you find the most weird stuff that is just so evocative. And secondly, because I run a one-man show and uh, from the profit I get from my games, I can't afford to like hire custom-made art or everything, right. anything like that. So I rely on uh, anything that I can find that is public domain or it's part of a, my Canva signature uh, and uh, subscription, I mean. So I was scrolling through some art and I stumbled upon this scroll from a Japanese crow from, I think it is 15th century or something like that, with all these demons portrayed on this crow. It's a very long horizontal scroll. It's like a demon parade mm. that uh, the artist portrayed. And I was looking at it. First, the, the illustrations were excellent. They are the illustrations that are now on the book. And secondly, the first thing I, I, I thought of, and I was definitely because I've probably had read something on the subject uh, at that moment, recently at that moment, about those uh, standards of uh, the good guys are good looking and the bad guys are <laughs> bad looking, you know? You see the, like, the Marvel cast. Every hero is, like, goddamn gorgeous. And uh, yep. why? Why is that, right? So I thought... What if those demons that are portrayed here are actually very good spirits, but we don't give them a chance to show them that because they just look too different for us. Right. And that was the spark. And I said, oh, okay, this is a game. This is a game right here. So when that thing happens, usually my process is really fast. So mm. I wrote the game like in three days, the complete thing and laid out include, included. And, uh, it was just like the things start getting into place, but that happens because I don't turn off the game designer brain at any moment. There is always this what ifs floating in my mind. Mm -hmm. Like I, I read something there, there's a snippet of a rule that keeps in my mind or I 
watch something, there's a, a snippet of a, a setting. And when I sit down to make a game, those things start to connect. Right. And then when I saw that, I said, okay, I want to put players in the position of feeling how it is like to try to do good for people. And first of all, not being able to do it directly, which is, I think, the biggest mechanical challenge and change for this, because you can't influence the, the, the world directly as a spirit. And right. secondly, trying to do the right thing and being seen as a demon, as something to be repelled. And the game just derived from there. You know what I mean? So, I mean, what a challenge that is. And, and maybe... Maybe in order for everybody to get a better sense of this, I buy the PDF off Fitch. I sit down. What happens? Right. So let's give people an idea of what happens when I start to play not a demon. Right. Well, this touches on a very important subject for me as a game designer, which is procedure. Mm. Uh this game is, as I said, is solo or can be played cooperatively without a GM. And when I say that GMless games, uh, I usually say that they make me a better game designer is that when you remove the assumption that there is going to be an intelligent being at the table with experiences from other things outside of the game that is going to provide everything to fill in the blanks of you, the designer, and make sure that all the cogs and gears move when you remove that you as the designer have to provide everything in this book for the game to run and i have i had this first insight when i read iron sword for the first time mm. which is a game that can be played solo co-op or guided but even guided it assumes that you can play it solo so the game has to stand on its feet by itself you can't say like oh just ask the gm they will decide uh, the gm will provide the challenge the gm will no no you have to do it so yeah. uh, one of the ways that i uh embrace this philosophy is by establishing a very procedural gameplay And when I say this for the first time for people that only play traditional guided games, they say, oh, so it's more like a board game. No, not at all. Quite the opposite. In my experience for, from seeing people playing those games that are, have a very heavy procedural gameplay look is that since the game already provides you with a structure of what to do next, You can focus on enjoying and developing the story yourself without having this thing on your mind, always this clock running all the time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, what happens next? Oh, what, what am I supposed to do now? So what I try to do in, in all my games is there is a chapter called gameplay loop or the equivalent of that. And you say, step one, you do this. Mm -hmm. After you do this, step two. So it sounds like a recipe for the first time you read and said, okay, this is not a storytelling game. This is not, but it is after you kind of incorporate that and you can refer back to it when you miss a bit, it flows naturally from one stage to the other. So when you sit down, going back to your question, sit down to play not a demon, you have the six demons already like playbooks that you already uh, can pick from and you customize a bit of the, their, their talents and everything. And then you follow the loop. There is this island 
that you go to, you come from the spirit realm and you go from to one of those settlements and uh, try to help people. And then you're going to have for each of those settlements, interesting persona that you can talk to. They have a quirk, a problem, a secret. And they, then you have a list of possible problems they are facing. Mm -hmm. Those can be very mundane problems, uh, community challenges, like decisions they have to make, or perhaps something a little more tragic, like uh, uh, a threat that is coming from some, somewhere else, a natural threat. And then you work through the steps, uh, performing your actions and making sure that everything that you do is very subtle because mm. uh, you have to help, but you can't, sh can't show your face or you can't scare, scare them. So uh, it's a game about subtlety, uh, about being gentle and nudging things so that it feels like coincidentally everything worked out <laughs> just fine. You know what I mean? And then you go without receiving any laurels for for your good doing and uh, just go to to a next uh, next settlement and start all over that gives us a sense of what success looks like in the game right but if i'm facing challenges and i'm engaging with this game i'm sure there's times where me as a player will fall short of success can we give somebody a, give everybody a little bit of idea of what that looks like in not a demon yes of course uh, and that was this important uh, change on the core rules of uh, dash actually i made a lot of changes i actually when i published i i uh message rp and i said i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> i flipped your game on its head and it created a lot of different stuff but uh he is a, a very gentle soul he got yeah. back to me and said uh this is excellent this is one of the best games i've i've seen with the system so thank you for doing it and help promote it so he's a gentleman so, uh, uh, one of the things that I had to make sure was that you can't be harmed by people. You're a spirit physically harmed, but their actions towards you hurt you. Mm. They taint your spirit. So, uh, if you try to, to perform something, you're not very successful. You scare them or they get a glimpse of you. Mm. So rumors start spreading Oh, there's a demon. So it's more likely that people will notice you. And uh, it can end up in two things if things go really badly. One of them is that you simply have to go back to the spirit realm. Uh, you're like exhaled from, from the place you are. Mm -hmm. But worse than that, those things that people say about you can start to make you feel like, that maybe they're right, Ooh. you know, maybe you are the monster they believe you are. It, it makes you bitter. Mm. And mechanically, there is a point when you flip and it, you lose your character. You actually become the demon that people believed you are. And that comes, of course, uh, uh, I don't need to say this is a commentary on society. It's, <laughs> I think it's quite, quite obvious, but in case I didn't make it clear, apes, hey, this is a comment on, on how we treat uh, people from uh, different countries, from different places, from different backgrounds, from yeah. different ethnicities. And uh, the, this thing that you're not able to be recognized as yourself, it can be hard for you to keep your composure and keep 
trying to be the best version of yourself when everyone around you is telling you that you're not. Right, right. And uh, this game plays with that with care. There's safety tools because this is not a soft subject to play yeah. with. But uh, yeah, the idea is that you see yourself changing. Perhaps I, I'm not meant to be a, a guiding spirit. Perhaps I have to go back to spirit realm. Or perhaps they're right. I, I am mm. a demon. Look at me. I'm ugly. I'm different yeah. from them, you know? So uh, it's kind of a heavy in this way, but uh, I tend to fix my uh, mechanics towards success in most of my games. I want people to feel that they are able to make a difference, even on strong subject, subjects like that. I don't want to be a cynic, you know what I mean? So there is this risk, but I want to offer you the opportunity to do something about it. So I, want, I won't punish you with the right. dice. Like you have like 10% chance of surviving. Uh, that is right for some gen genres, like if you're like writing a horror story, for example, or like Wretched and Alone, you have like this limited chance to survive an right. alien attack alone in a spaceship. Of course you, you do. And I have written games when you have zero chance of survival. But in this case, that is touching on a subject of uh, accepting yourself. I want the probabilities to work on your favor, not against right. you. You know what I mean? So, and, and, and that, that fits, that fits with the message that fits with the voice and, and the genre that you're, you're doing. Now, something that I've always found interesting with solo games, obviously play testing's easy or right, because you don't have to get together a group of people. You can play test it yourself, but I would imagine at some point you can't just play it yourself in order to truly play test the game. You've got to get it in other people's hands. And I'd like to get a sense of how that process was and what was the thoughts and feelings and feedback you got and how did it impact the final product? So here's a secret. I didn't. Whoa. <laughs> well, and uh, I have very strong feelings about that uh, regarding playtesting in general. Yeah. Of course, it is one of the most important steps on, you know, on the game design process, but I think it is sometimes overrated. And I will explain what I mean. If you don't have, if you don't expand too much on the minutiae of uh, numbers and little balances or very little things interlocking with each other, you can get away with a lot by basing yourself on things that you've seen working on different places, right? So if I get a game like Blades in the Dark, the numbers aren't complicated, but it's right. a, a, a Swiss watch of yes. very interlocking gears. So I wouldn't publish a game of that size without play testing for years like John Harper right. did, of course. Uh, but of a, with games of the size that I use usually publish and with the interlocking mechanisms on the level of complexity, that I usually do, you can get away by incorporating different personas in yourself and acting out as different people mm. at the same time and simulating what would be a, a playtesting group. Of course, if you have the chance to play with a group, nothing, nothing beats that. Right. And you, you will get insights from people, from things that you probably never considered. Uh, but you can, after 
some 20 games, you, you have the things pretty much in your head. Got so it. there's a structure of how my games usually work in my head that when I sit down to write and see the pieces coming together, it's not really hard to make things stand in, on, on their, their own. Uh, what I usually do is when I publish it and I have a sale going on, I ask, oh, hey, you, you're going to get this game for a cheaper price, but in exchange, I want some feedback. Yeah. Have you run it? What did you find? And then a uh, version 1.1, 1.2 will address some minor changes and everything. Uh, so I'd encourage people that are now considering making their first games or second games, and they're afraid that they don't have a community to play test them. Don't worry about it. I think this, uh, the people that say, oh, you can't publish a game without play testing it heavily. They're not doing a very good favor for people to feel included. The same right. way back then when I didn't have access to a publisher, to software, to art. And I said, oh, publishing game is not for me. If yep. you live in a place or you're not socially comfortable to get a playtest group, I say to you, you have my authorization to publish your game, playtesting by yourself or imagining a group by yourself. Yep. So don't worry, unless you're writing like a 500 page under a thousand dollar contract to someone, then okay. Otherwise, feel free. Yeah. And, and, and what that evokes for me as well, Cesar, is that uh, something that I keep hearing, which is in order to be a game designer, you got to you got to design games. Right. Um, and in the same way, you write, you hear that with writers all the time. You're not a writer until you've written something. Yeah. Um, and it sounds to me and I keep hearing this and I'm hearing it from you, too. Like, like, just do it. Right. Exactly. And, and maybe the first one sucks, um, but you did it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. then you can go from there. Absolutely. Uh, actually, you want to make bad games, you know, mm. you have to Why? get this uh, because you have to approach this from like a, a draft zero perspective, right? It's not even the first draft, it's the zero draft. Mm. You don't need to wait until you have a very good first line to start making your lines, your paragraphs, your mechanics. Oh, you're going to write another fantasy heartbreaker. Go ahead and do it. Right. Write, uh, publish bad games. Of course, not bigotry or fascism yes, or anything like that. That's what we're okay? talking about. Yeah. yeah. Not, not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking bad games about, oh, maybe it's clunky. Maybe it doesn't work all the time. Maybe it's missing important points, but you've done it. it like it freeze something in your mind that, okay, oof, I'm not starting from blank. I'm authorized to do it. And to expand right. on what you said, in order to be a game designer, you have to design games. I would flip it and say that when you design a game, you're already a game designer. There is yeah. no one that holds like a diploma. Oh, okay. Now you are authorized to make games. Just go ahead and do it. Use Google Docs use public domain images, do bad games, and then you kind of get a sense of the craft and you're free from this pressure of uh, developing a very good game from the get-go. No, make a bad game and then you go ahead and start making mediocre and eventually you <laughs> might make some good games. <laughs> I'm trying to get there, Craig. <laughs> well, and, I, and, and what that ties to is what we just talked about, that even when you talked about your first, you know, hack of a hack of a hack fate, game that's still 
and you look back and you go, I've, I'm, I'm way beyond that now. I would never make that game today. But we talked about that there were still things there that started there. And, and, and have, more importantly, and, I wouldn't have done the games I did now if I right. hadn't done that one. Exactly. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about one of the newer games coming from Cesar. We're going to talk about Nexalis. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying our long form interviews with creatives on this podcast? Maybe you're craving deeper discussions about our guests or some of the RPG plays on our Twitch and YouTube channel. Well, I've got an opportunity for you. You see, Third Floor Wars now has a Patreon-only Discord server. You can join a vibrant community of like-minded enthusiasts diving deep into every episode of our RPG plays and podcast, connect with fans, engage in spirited discussions, and unlock the -the behind-the-scenes insights. For just a dollar a month, access a world of tabletop gaming goodness. Connect with passionate gamers who share your love for the Tabletop Podcast and everything produced on the third floor. As a Patreon supporter, you also enjoy ad-free episodes of this podcast. You can immerse yourselves in captivating stories and fascinating interviews without interruptions, taking your listening experience to a whole new level. By joining the Third Floor Wars Patreon community, you not only gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only Discord server, but you also support the growth of my podcast and channels. Your contributions enable me to continue creating high-quality content that entertains, educates, and upskills tabletop enthusiasts like yourself. Maybe don't wait. Join the Third Floor Wars Patreon today and unlock a world of camaraderie, discussions, and knowledge. Visit patreon.com forward slash third floor wars or check the link in the show notes and come join our community. The Third Floor Wars Patreon-only Discord server awaits you. I and the other patrons can't wait to welcome you with open arms and a fistful of dice. So this next game, Nexalis, I'm going to read the blurb uh, again so everybody has context. Nexalis is an otherworldly realm where islands drift amidst an endless cosmic ocean of magical plasma, the nectar. The nectar pulsing with vibrant, ever-shifting colors mirrors the celestial patterns that guide adventurers on their thrilling journeys. At the heart of this sea lies the celestial nexus. An entrancing vortex of astral energy that births islands and renews the world in a constant cycle of creation. Because as you journey through the starbound islands and the shimmering nectar ocean, you will encounter vibrant cultures, awe-inspiring landscapes, ancient relics, and enigmatic secrets. Guided by celestial constellations, you will brave untold challenges, learn valuable lessons, and forge lasting bonds with the people and places you encounter. Before we even get started, I read the blurb on Not a Demon, and I've just read the blurb on Nexalis. Are you writing these? Yeah. Or someone helping you? (laughs) No, that's me. So uh, it's really fascinating to me. Like, 
it's so um, like I can almost taste the game, <laughs> if that makes any sense, because of of how um, and I, I wish I had a better word, how evocative the writing is. It, it's very, um, very specific and very inspiring. So before we get into the games, is this do you start here? when you're making these games or do you complete the game and then say, okay, now I need to put together a paragraph or two describing it. How does, how do these, these great paragraphs come together? Thank you. First of all, because, uh, uh, and it's interesting that you ask this question because, uh, I, English is my second language and I'm very self-conscious when I'm speaking and writing in English because I don't want to sound like a robot or, and I strive to make those texts sound natural. So uh, I've written a thread recently about how writing in a second language is both a blessing and a curse. <laughs> uh, it's a curse because I think I'm much smarter in Portuguese. I'm much more articulate right. and interesting in Portuguese that I, I'm able to do. I'm limited by my vocabulary, by my understanding of the rules, by the naturality of the, the language. But it's also a blessing because since I have this fixed structure, my sentence tend to be very straightforward, very direct and everything else, especially regarding the rules. When it comes to flavor text like these, what usually happens is I have a draft, a very rough idea of this setting that I write as I am writing the game. I usually write this God. in order. But what happens most of the time is while I develop the game and the mechanics start saying things about this setting that I hadn't realized before, I go mm -hmm. back to this description with a better understanding of the game that I just created and the world that it actually is. And I revisit it, looking to the, those points, those touchstones that the mechanics emphasize throughout the game and making sure that the thing that I want the game to do and the thing that the game is actually doing are the same. And it's not uh, rare that I, when I look back and I said, okay, I'm, I was promising something here on this blurb. But actually, my game is about something slightly different than what I said. Mm -hmm. And then when I revise this, uh, uh, there is a lot of thesaurus going on there. <laughs> because again, I, I have like, uh, uh, it's been like, I, I lived in, in the US for seven months back in 2006. So we're talking a long time ago, 16 years ago. So from then on, I never used my my English in a very conversational way Right again. So when I start to write and I... I don't consume any more media than like YouTube videos or series. I have to craft those carefully. So in my uh, mind, what I'm trying to say, and I think thankfully it comes across well, is that let me make sure that I'm saying what I want to say with these words. So I, it takes more time for me to write those three paragraphs than like 20 pages of rules. Just yeah. to the tone to get the tone right, you know? Well, if we've learned anything though, Cesar, like the promise is important to you, right? That came up when we were talking about, you know, 12 year old you, right? The promise is important to you. And this ends up being the promise. So, I mean, I just read this out poorly, by the way, I read this out, you know, to my audience. And now Nexalis, if for everybody that's grabbing Nexalis, it needs to live up to that. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that you would have to spend a good bit of time uh, on this text because it's, it's important for the relationship between you as a designer and the people that play your games. Exactly. I uh, 
try to keep in mind that when I'm making decisions and when people ask me for advice when developing uh, game mechanics or anything like that, it's a very basic one, but it's something that we tend to forget, especially when we get on our heads in the middle of the process of designing mechanics and everything. You get to a point that you're like circumventing something and you have to stop and think, how is this serving the promise I made on the first two paragraphs? And then you take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, I, I don't think I need that. Or this is, <laughs> this is giving a different signal, totally, completely different from what the game expects. So when I have this thing that I, I'm looking here and writing my mechanics or my gameplay loop, especially in this case of Nexalis, and I look there and I say, oh, wait, okay, either I adjust the promise or I adjust the rules, but right. uh, it comes exactly from what you said, from the frustration of that 12-year-old kid. They're saying, okay, this, this audio is excellent. The illustrations are great, but come on, Taco. Why, why am I looking up Thaco? <laughs> really? That doesn't make sense. So yeah, uh, I can't do that with the players of my games. You know, uh, I can't. It's just uh, not in me. So let's talk about Nexalis and let's get a sense of, of how this game came together. So at some point it didn't exist. What? What inspired you to sit down for the first time to, to start to create what ended up being Nexalis? Can we go back there? Yeah, we can. Uh, again, I, <laughs> this is something that I repeat a lot uh, in my game design process. It's just, it starts, well, I think I'm going to make a little hack of the system. And then 100 pages later, <laughs> here I am with a full-fledged game. So it wasn't different in this case. My friend, a Brazilian friend, Tiago Junges, he is a great game designer. He published some games in English. Uh, I think people might know, especially people from the solo RPG community, NoteQuest and uh, Ronin, which is a solo game about redemption. Games that I love and I look up to him uh, a lot. He published more than 50 games in Brazil. Wow. And he's younger than me which is irritating. <laughs> How frustrating is that, right? Yeah. But he's a sweetheart. And uh, he published uh, an SRD called C4, which is a very basic, straightforward system. It's like 1D6 plus modifier versus target number. It couldn't get simpler than that. And it's aimed the same way I aimed my first hex. You know, you can, but not for new players, for new designers. Mm -hmm. You can make your own game. Just get these things. It's like four pages. Yeah. Replace the names and you're good to go. Attach a setting. So I, he released the SRD recently and I said, you know what? I'm just going to mess with it to see how it works. So I'm going to make a, a vanilla fantasy generic game and uh, let's see how it goes. And then, <laughs> and then Exalis happened. I, uh, I first stumbled upon a great game jam that was going on itch for art assets. I don't know if you followed those one. No. It was excellent, man. It was TTRPG art asset jam. So cool. uh, artists and uh, creators of all kinds of designs and everything got together to put it on a bundle of uh, stock art icons and everything. It was wow. amazing. And I saw this character art. It was like six uh, characters uh, by Penflower Inc. And they put it on sale for four bucks. And I said, oh my God. And the, the art is so good that it actually inspired 
the setting. I said, I have to make a game using these six characters. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit, Cesar. So what, what was it on those characters that, that caused that leap, right? So now, now the setting is done. And now knowing that those six character illustrations were the, the, the birthing, Genesis. Uh, yeah, the birthing of this. See, knowing the setting now, what will I see in those characters that will help me make that jump? I don't know if you would, uh, because I made associations in my mind that uh, led to this to this setting, and those were Penflower tried to make six classic fantasy classes, like uh, the the fighter, the paladin, or the knight, the druid, and and so on. But they took it with a slightly different take. Mm-hmm. especially considering diversity in ethnicities. And there is nothing uh, telling clearly uh, like genre, genre expression or gender expression, or but you can see that they deviate from the assumptions that you would have from those classes. And that was so inspiring to me. And mm. the, uh, the association process was, okay, we have those fantasy classes, but with a different take, which for me resonated with a more positive take, you know, because it's more inclusive, it's more diverse. So I wanted to make a fantasy game with a more positive tone. Interesting. Which led me to ask myself, what is the opposite of dark fantasy? And that's why I qualify Nexilis as bright fantasy, Mm -hmm. which is not a world devoted of conflict or intrigue or anything, but is a world when you are allowed to smile, not to be optimistic, to, to make a difference, to be heroic and to expect people to be the best versions of themselves is the opposite of green dark that you can't trust on anyone. Right. It's, it's the Warhammer flipped on its yeah. head, you know, it's, uh, it's not grim and dark and gloom. There is conflict, there is violence, there is combat, there is struggle, but you can expect the, the best, you know? And I saw that on the portrayal of characters that felt more diverse, inclusive, and overall optimistic, like a, yeah. an optimistic perspective on the world. So when you're creating a game that, that you label a bright fantasy as putting up a mirror to a Mark Borg or even like a Forbidden Lands, right? Who, how, how, do you, how do you make the antagonist then, right? So if we're going to be optimistic, if this is going to be bright fantasy, we still need some sort of antagonism for that conflict. So how do you, how do you do that without losing what you're going for? There was, that's a great point uh, because I had approached uh, this kind of uh, perhaps more positive uh, vibe in a different game of mine. It's Scraps. Uh, briefly, Scraps is a crafting game in a hopeful world, but this game is strictly nonviolent. The concept of violence does not exist. They don't understand violence mm-hmm. in that world. So there is no antagonism per se. You go traveling uh, in order to craft things to improve your community and yourself and you change. So I explored that in a game. So I said, I don't need to do this again this time. I want to explore something else. And uh, I think looking back at it, I was uh, influenced by some kinds of more perhaps we'd say young adult media like uh, the the animated series The Dragon Prince on on Mm. Netflix 
or Shira, somebody told me that they reminded of that. Nice. And those, those settings, they have antagonists, but you can, it's not that it is just very black and white, oh, you're the bad guys and we're the good guys, but there is this feeling that you can trust all the people that are on your side to be on your side. And you can understand that something needs to be fixed or understood. And when I create the adventure hooks for Nexalis, some things are more obvious, like uh, there, this is causing a big problem we need to fix. Some things are more mysterious. And, mm. and then the quest is based on understanding what that thing needs. So something appears that we don't clearly understand. The basic assumption would be, okay, let's eliminate that. But I try to do it, okay, perhaps this is an antagonist, perhaps not. Let's right. find out. Let's hear their side of the story. So a world in, in which people trust each other and people live harmoniously can also have things to be solved, can also have problems to, to, that, that they face because... Yeah, because people are people. And uh, mm -hmm. in a magic world, uh, Nexalis is the highest fantasy that I've ever written. Uh, flying giant serpents can appear in the sky on the top of, a, of your island. So it can be seen as a threat, but perhaps not. It certainly seems like something that we need to evaluate and investigate. So that's the premise. Well, and there's a huge difference, as I'm listening to you, Cesar, there's a huge difference between eliminating a threat and fixing or solving a threat, right? Those are two very, very different things. And a lot of times in, in grimdark fantasy, the answer is always eliminate the threat. Um, and so it sounds to me like, yeah, that's not necessarily what you're going to have to do here. Uh, what you have yeah. to do here is you have to figure out, is there a threat, first off? And if so, how do, how do I resolve it and how do mm -hmm. I potentially fix it? That's interesting. Oh, accommodate or, uh, but also something that is different from dark fantasy is that you get this feeling that there is something that you can do to make things better. Because usually mm -hmm. the case on, on those other media is that no matter what you do, the world is always a piece of crap. It's just, it's yeah. always and <laughs> always end badly yeah. somehow. Right. But uh, not the case in Exalis. And I try to really lean on that. I didn't understand what I was trying to do until I uh, labeled it uh, as, okay, this is bright fantasy. And this is what I mean by, by that. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, that's the kind of vibe I'm trying to give. And it's not that I, I considered dark fantasy wrong or incorrect. No, it's I, just a different genre. It's just the vibe I was in. And uh, my games are very diverse. I, uh, I do something that's like non-violent and then I do something that is too like a dungeon crawling space. And then I do cows against zombies. You've seen my, my, my list of games, uh, expect the unexpected. So <laughs> this time I wanted to, to, to explore this feeling as in, uh, most of the times when I design a game is because there is something in my mind that I want to understand better. And then I, uh, go a hundred percent all in, in that thing. And by designing the game, I have a better perspective of the thing. Sometimes things that have happened in my life, which was the case in a, in a two-player game that I that I wrote, uh, and perhaps I'll deviate if I go there. But uh, the thing is, there's things in my mind 
that I need to work on, perhaps concepts about game design, about rules, mm -hmm. perhaps concepts about the world that I'm perceiving, that through the process of publishing a game, I have a better understanding of. So at the very beginning of this interview, we talked about the dissonance between the promise and the mechanics, right? And the ability to deliver. With this game here, we've got our lighthouse. That Our lighthouse is bright fantasy and that concept and the world needs to support that. That's what's guiding your ship as you go through this process. I want to get a little feeling, though, of how the game mechanically supports that. Yeah, this is a, a, a very interesting question, particularly for this game, because if we get the C4, the SRDA based the game upon raw, it doesn't. It's, right. it's, it's written to be as generic as possible. There is nothing more generic than 1D6 plus modifier versus target number as a conflict resolution system. Mm -hmm. So as a challenge for myself, I decided to try and tackle this, this game from a different perspective. What I mean by that is usually I try to tie the results of the dice and the mechanics around the game to specific parts of the themes and the fiction that I'm trying to convey. This is something that I learned from PBTA, from Forged in the Dark right. Games and, and things like that. And this is all very tied together. For this one, I, I wanted to be more approachable for traditional players or for people that have had experiences with games that are more like roll a dice versus number. I, I didn't want to create a lot of moves or intricate relationships between mechanics because I wanted it to be like, oh, oh, it, this looks like a fantasy game that I know of. I want to grab it and open it and say, oh, okay, I kind of know what it is. And I didn't want to push people away from very different mechanics at this yep. point. So instead, I said, how do I go about creating this feeling of bright fantasy without inputting a lot of lore that you have to absorb? Right. Uh, because honestly, I don't think lore does a great job in making sure that the themes of the game are, uh, they manifest in a I session, agree. right? You yeah. can't ignore it completely. But I did it through the gameplay loop. How so? I base my games, uh, since it's a gameless game as well, uh, I base my games on uh, generators, oracles, and those roles and, and things like that. As you go through the steps, of this process of creating your adventure and living your adventure as you create it, you are resorted to different tables. And my word choice for those tables is very careful. Right. So when you roll like a seed of a mission, it gives you, in a sense, which is very contrary to the way you play the game if you look at it the first time, Craig. It's like the hook for the adventure gives you like a railroad of what you would have to do to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, for example, uh, a giant staircase going nowhere appeared in the middle of the island. You must go to the island uh, and then defeat the challenges in the way and discover what's good. Like there is a step by step. Right. But. What actually happens is that you won't do that because the way the dice rolls and the oracle rolls, they will lead your adventure in a different direction. But when I write those uh, step by step, I communicate 
the things that you are not supposed to do. Got it. So, for example, uh, a spirit took the lighthouse. You must learn what they need and uh, try to uh, uh, understand how can you live together. So it's not saying you must go there and kill it. By saying the opposite very clearly, even though when you play the game, you must deviate from it depending on the dice rolls. I'm giving you a sense, like broad strokes of what the system is about. When you roll on a table for more details on a scene, those details are carefully selected to reinforce the wondrous elements of a bright fantasy game. Uh, the generosity of the people you find. And those, they're spread like uh, little seeds of bright fantasy throughout the steps you take through, during the gameplay loop. So that was a different approach for me because yeah. as a game designer, uh, sometimes you, you have this feeling that you want to control the experience. And uh, if I don't make sure that every single result is tied to the, the theme, it will escape my grasp. It will become like a hack and slash. And uh, oh my God, we're going to become like another dungeon crawler. I, I try to do is just to lose control for a bit as an experiment. I don't know if it's going to result or if I will ever do that again. Lose control on the dice aspect and try to do it through the gameplay loop mm-hmm. with those broad strokes. Does that make sense? It makes total sense, right? And it, and it you know, <laughs> oddly ties to what we were talking about, about the, the, the promise of the blurb as well, right? That the words that we choose, um, is significant. And when you talk about, um, presenting the mystery and here, here's the things you need to solve it. Um, it's very prescriptive, but we have a ton of freedom on how we get there, but there, there is something that is nice about I know what needs to be done. I have these goals. Um, I, I think about um, uh, Jason Cordova's public access game has a very clear thing. Like w- when a mystery presents it in the game, the GM in that case will say, here's your mystery. You need to answer this question. Now, how you do that, what the answer is, all of that's what, you know, wide open. And I, you said, you know, it can be a bit of a railroad, but really it's just a destination more than anything. And how you get there is neat. Now, do you have a sense, Cesar, um, it, for people that are listening, is there an ideal player number here? We know it's GMless. Yeah, I wouldn't play. Uh, I, I think I mentioned in a book from one to six because that's okay. the number of playbooks we have. But I think the game shines with uh, two to four people. Got it. Really. Uh, it, it plays well solo, but there are some, uh, some mechanics that really rely on uh, decision making, uh, collective decision making. So I think two to four people is where the game has room to breathe and where the, I think the best aspects of the game design uh, shine really. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would encourage if you have like two or three people to experiment with, give it a go. Otherwise go solo and have fun. In a GM game, a, a traditional, you know, GM and player game. Player, not character, but player um, disagreements or indecisions 
can be resolved by the GM. It's a role that the GM can do and can facilitate. Like we've talked about this enough. Um, you know, this is what we're going to do and we're going to keep going forward. How do you deal with that here though? Right. Is there mechanically something that helps make sure that the game keeps pushing forward? If I don't have that arbitrator. I love this question. Craig. <laughs> I love it. I wrote about it on my newsletter just this week. It's unbelievable. It read my mind. <laughs> so uh, I'll give you uh, an answer in two parts. First, I'll give the titles of the two parts. First one, GMless games solve 80% of table management problems that we see around. And number two, Oracle roles are much more powerful than we give credit for. Interesting. So starting with number one, we have, although we say, oh, GM is not your uh, enemy, it, it's not there to be the antagonist. We naturally have this thing that if there is a person in a group in a position of authority, yep. that person needs to be challenged. Right. We see that person, oh, this guy is trying to, trying to trick me and the group together is trying to double trick them. You know, I put an NPC or a monster that I house ruled and then my players came up with a different use of the spell and my encounter was finished in two seconds. We see those stories over and over and over and over. And when you go to a Reddit page, like those uh, GM advice subreddits, oh, how do I get my players to, how do I get my players? And this is all based upon the traditional position of a GM and players, even more recent games that open up the, the narrative for contribution from the players is still have this feeling, the sense that someone holds the responsibility and the authority for all the things to make sense, to be right. connected. And they're holding secrets that us as players have to defeat to, to solve and everything like that. When you remove this, you have to take a step back and the people around the table, they, we are all together in the same level, which mm. is we are trying to have the best experience possible. And this, you can see a phenomenon that people that never played cooperative games, only GM games, the first time they play co-op, they are much more comfortable in failing with their characters <laughs> than they were with a GM, because That's you think when you fail against GM, they are going to punish you. I don't know what happens. I don't have control over my failure. They can kill me. When you remove the GM, people agree much more easily. They say, you know what? What would be fun if I lost my sword right now? You don't hear that on a GM table. Right. Because you have to win when you're against an opponent. So you take the step back and you say, oh, it would be interesting if you missed your arrow and shot me because it would be so dramatic. And then yeah. you can use that. And so uh, you see the magic happening when you remove this. And uh, if you actually got get to a point when you're going to play a cooperative game with people that don't vibe with this thing, it's not the game's fault. I, I'm sorry. Why are you playing with this kind of people? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you don't. This game is not for this table. It's not for this table. You know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, I, uh, I have to make this decision. I'm 40 years old. I don't want to convi convince people to be nice through yeah. game design anymore. You know, I want to write games that cater to nice people, that people that like to share those kinds of experience. If you want to be the alpha player, perhaps there's some place for you, but don't expect. A ton of games to. out there. 
<laughs> Don't want to games out there. So this is one part of the, 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 the answer that I gave you that I think when we remove this place of authority, people jam together much right. more easily. The second part, the mechanical part is the Oracle. The most simple Oracle for solo play is the yes or no Oracle. It's a dice mechanic or a card mechanic that answers simple questions that you would normally shoot a GM. Is it raining? Roll a die? Yes, no. Uh, does she recognize me? Yes, no. Is there a door that I can see? Yes or no. There are, those are things that you want to like outsource your creativity as a solo player. You don't want to feel that you're cheating and making everything in favor of you. But normally what solo games do is that they use this mechanic for in-fiction questions, like the, mm -hmm. the examples I gave you. What I proposed in Excel is, is that you use the same mechanic for education. The other important role that a game master would do, if you ask a question, for example, can I use this spell to do X and the text doesn't say clearly, roll the dice mm -hmm. and the dice will answer. Yes, you can. Maybe, no, you cannot. Or no, but, no, you cannot do that, but perhaps you can do something else. Uh, can we flee from a combat? Does, do we need to make a roll? Am I affected by attack of opportunity? Right. All things that perhaps the rules are not clear or as you discuss with your players and you don't want to make like a, a choice by yourselves, afraid that you're kind of either benefiting yourselves too much, like cheating, or you're being punishing yourself because, oh, I don't have a GM, so I have to pick the worst choice possible for yep. me. Just simply outsource this decision to the dice and use the Oracle as an adjudicator of rules. So I have like tons of examples in Excelis on ways that you can use the dice as a house rule generator. And, and when you think about it, Cesar, that is a tradition as old as time in role playing, right? So everybody is, you know what? I'm not sure. Let's roll a die. On a four, five, or six, then yes. On a one, two, or three, no. We do we outsource that all the time, even in the most traditional of games. Um, oh yeah. So the why one not to co six. codify it? Yeah. Very, exactly. very cool. So the last thing I want to do, Cesar, and this has become one of my favorite segments of the show, which is um, getting an understanding of what turns you on. Like what? What do you groove on? So the way I like to do that is: is there anything recently that you've read, that you've played, that you've watched? that really spoke to you. And uh, if you're like me, sometimes things can like kind of take over your life a little bit. Like I need to keep playing this game or I need to, I need to watch all 12 episodes or I need to, I need to not only watch this movie again, I need to tell everybody in the world about this movie. What's an example of that recently for you? Right. Yeah. That might come as a surprise because it's not like a, a fiction media or books or movies or series in particular. But it's something that has affected my life, my professional life, my creative life immensely. And I think more people could take advantage, especially if their professions or their lives uh, rely on creative process and dealing with people online or things like that, which is stoicism. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, I came across the Stoicism philosophy a few years ago, and uh, I started reading about it, and it resonated with me in, in a lot of ways. Uh, especially in that moment, I used to work for the government. I was uh, 
pretty much on the brink of burnout I, I, and I ended up a bit burned out, which led me to leave my career, move overseas and find myself on a tiny grain of island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which is where I live right now. But mostly, uh, I, uh, I was raised with this concept of uh, trying to please people and to uh, like attend to expectations of everyone about me. I think growing up, I had like the highest grades in school. So everything was, everyone was expecting me to like be top of everything I did and everything else. And that was kind of hard. And when I got to this job at the government, you have to like pass an exam. It's, uh, they take like, it was like one single uh, opening they had. And there was like 300 people taking the test. And the first one got the job. It was me. So I said, oh, okay, I have to live to the expectation of the right. person that got in. So I exhausted myself for nine years trying to be the best that I could and trying to, you know, working for the government, seeing all the things that you don't have control of mm -hmm. and those projects that take forever to move and sometimes questioning what is the, what's good of everything that you're doing, you know what I mean? And uh, I found solace in stoicism, especially the aspect of uh, making sure you know the things you are in control of and the things you're not in control of. And uh, there was a relief when I said, okay. And, and it's also when you are, when you feel that you're hurt or attacked by something external, you have, you're not hurt by the thing itself, but by our evaluation of the thing. Right. And this, you have the power to control at any moment. So these two things together make a lot of sense for me now as a person that has to expose himself a lot. Working as a creative is a very vulnerable position. Yeah. Because you like, when you, I wrote a game, uh, uh, that, that two-player game that I said about saying goodbye, I was working through mourning the death of my father. So putting out a game that was so intense for me, and it was part of a competition. Wow. It was like, if I hadn't had this sense of, you know, what do I have control of this process here? Is it going to be good? I don't know. It, people are going to like it? Not sure. I don't care. What I need to do is this is that I have in my hands. And that helped me a lot because uh, it was freeing. So much so that I ended up winning the competition and the mm -hmm. game was published afterwards. But I think if I were too much in my head at the moment, I wouldn't be able to process such a strong moment in my life through game design and uh trying to cater to other people's expectations. So stoicism, and more recently, I've been listening to a lot of Alan Watts's uh, lectures, which is, uh, I think he was a British-American philosopher that uh, talks about Zen Buddhism and Taoism a lot. And all these things, uh, without the religion aspect of it, right. uh, the philosophy of life aspect of uh, considering yourself enough just by existing yeah. you're not supposed to nothing nobody's expecting nothing to you the meaning of life is just to be alive 
this is very freeing for a person that is exposing themselves every like month that I publish yeah. a game, I'm putting a part of myself out to the world to be judged. So I can't say that I am uh, like immune to criticism. Sometimes right. they get under my skin and, but I, uh, I've learned to be kind to myself and to others. And if I can't be kind, I can be quiet. Mm. And this has helped me navigate the world of like promoting your things on Twitter, which is <laughs> right <laughs> hard. And, uh, it has led me to cultivating a group of friends and, a, a a very positive space in which I feel that I can be heard, can be seen, and uh, I can express myself without being self-conscious all the time. All of this just resonates so much for me, Cesar. Um, a book for me that sounds similar, that had a, a similar impact um, is uh, uh, William Glasser's uh, Choice Theory. Um, and the idea there ha has some overlap to the stoicism, which is the idea of um, nobody can do anything to me. Right. Um, so, uh, and, and he gets very involved with the language, right? So, um, you made me sad. No, 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 I'm sad. Right. I'm choosing sadness as a reaction to what you're doing. And, and, and it does, it, it puts control back into you. Now, unfortunately, William Glasser, I think really kind of, um, did damage to the brand because he turned it into like 15 books that all say the same thing with oh. different titles and monetize the shit out of it, which, Hey, knock yourself out. Right. Like that's, that's on him. Um, and when I, when I talk about that book to people, um, I say, just, just buy the first one. <laughs> and you don't need the workbook. You don't need book two. you know, just like everything you need is in there. It's, it's not imperfect, but that had a huge impact on me. Um, and, and I have to remind myself of it. Um, so I'm going to have to, so, so help me out here. So if, if I am now interested and I'm sure I'm not the only one that's interested, is there a book or two we can recommend to really start get a sense of what the stoicism philosophy is? So Ryan Holiday is a famous modern stoic writer is, I think he's about my age has published like 20 different books on the subject. You can pick any of those, but I would recommend uh, the podcasts and slash YouTube channel that are bite-sized thoughts or his newsletter as well, because uh, I think for those kinds of philosophies that have a very direct application to our lives, it's for me, at least they're more useful if they're a constant reminder. Right. So if I read a book, they might change my life for two weeks. <laughs> and then I, <laughs> I get back to my old ways. So, uh, with a newsletter and a podcast or a YouTube channel, I have snippets that, uh, w when something gets to me, I'm reminded that this is much more my choice. And then I, ha I have this, uh, brief moment of lucidity again and said, Oh, right. That's it. I've learned this lesson already. Right. I don't need to repeat this mistake. So I'd recommend this. And for Alan Watts, uh, there are the, his lectures are on YouTube on, and podcasts abundantly as well. And uh, on the various subjects, some are more metaphysical, some are very much more practical mm -hmm. in the sense of, uh, meaning of life and, uh, purpose that things that I struggled with, like when I decided to be a game designer, I said, really, 
you, the guy that everybody said should have the like the most brilliant career ever, you're going to make games about cows fighting zombies and uh, make peace with that it was a yeah. very important process uh, in, in my my career. So just search all on Watts on YouTube and, and knock yourself out. There's a lot of uh, very good stuff. Of course, 1974. So there are perhaps some language that changed. Sure. In, in terms of like uh, how they address uh, uh, Asian culture in general. Because there's where Taoism and Zen Buddhism come from and perhaps gender roles, but there is no misogyny or anything. Just it shows its age in some aspects. Uh, so take that with a grain of salt. But uh, the overall message is there uh, regardless. So uh, I'd recommend that for sure. It's uh, uh, this thing of uh, that you said that this choice, I I've even made a, a metaphor in my mind that uh, when somebody says something to me, Instead of uh, taking it into me directly, I imagine there is a, like a jar in mm -hmm. the middle of the two of us. So their words go into this jar. Then I look at them and I choose if I want to yeah. accept those things or the ones that I don't like, I reject. So they're not part of me. And uh, this has helped me a lot. I, I've heard once one of my favorite definitions of maturity is the increasing the gap between trigger and response. Oh, that's super interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Right. So I, I related to that a lot. So the, the ability to take a step back and before you react, you look at yourself from a third person perspective and say, huh, but wait a minute, does it relate to me? Is this true? Is it valid? Do I want to engage with that? If not, okay, now I know how to respond or not, or choose not to respond to. And this has affected my game design, my career, my personal life. So here's my recommendation. That's super fascinating because um, like one of the things that I've been working on is asking myself a simple question, which is why, right? So if I'm responding to something on Twitter, if I am uh, dealing with something at work, stopping and going, why, why? Why are you doing this? What is your goal? And if I can't put together a clear goal, then I need to stop doing it, right? <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and my goal might be to help myself, to help somebody else, to, to shut somebody up. That's a goal, right? But I need, I need to know what that is because we often react without that. Um, mm -hmm. So I love that phrasing. Uh, maturity is the, is the increased distance between action and reaction. That's super fascinating. Um, Cesar, there's a lot of really cool things to do on a little island out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on a Sunday <laughs> that doesn't involve sitting with me. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, no problem. It has been a lot of fun. I hope it has been fun for you as well. I've had a great time. Now, everybody knows the routine. Scroll down. We've got links to everything that we've talked about, um, including the, uh, oh, my God, there's so many good games page <laughs> for Cesar. <laughs> um, but uh, most importantly, this is the end. You made it all the way and you listened to it. And I appreciate you, too. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floorheads
accent. Freaking phenomenal. Oh, thank you, Craig. It was a great first segment. Great first segment. <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, all right, I'll bring us still here wow um well the episode is over but if you're bored why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month yeah you can just scroll down scroll down and yeah get the link it's patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible don't you want to join the other floor heads on the patreon discord anyway Thanks for sticking around.